welcome to the webinar. We'll get started in just a minute or two. Well, I know our presenters have a packed agenda for us today, so I will go ahead and get started with our housekeeping. Uh, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB, and glad you're joining us today for the final um, JNEB Journal Club webinar of this spring semester, um, looking at digital technology and nutrition education. So I have a handout. Um, of the presentation. So let me put that in the chat block um, for everyone to download and follow along. Uh, we will take questions um, at the end of the presentation. Uh, please type those in the question block. Uh, there'll be a short survey when I close out the webinar, but we're also doing something a little different today. Um, our presenters have a series of kind of survey questions that's going to go up into the chat box um, during our Q&A portion. So we'll point that out to you um, and appreciate your answers to those um, questions as well as the follow-up survey questions uh, after I close the webinar. And then watch for your email follow-up. Um, that should come to you by Wednesday of this week. If for some reason it comes directly from Zoom, if for some reason it doesn't show up, it should have the recording, uh, your CEU certificate, as well as um, the handout. If it doesn't come through, just send a staff a note and we'll make sure that we follow up and get that over to you. Um, so I'm happy to introduce our um, moderator again this week. Um, Lexi McMillan Uribe is uh, Assistant Professor of Healthy Living at Texas A&M AgriLife Research um, and the Texas A&M University System. And Lexi is also Chair of the SNEB Digital Technology Division, uh, which helped um, plan this semester's uh, webinar series. Great, thank you so much, Rachel. Um, so before we start our presentation, I'd like to um, say a little bit about the speakers that we have today. Um, we have two speakers, Lindsay J. Della and Mary Ashlock. And so um, Lindsay um, Della is an associate professor in the Department of Communication at the University of Louisville. She's a seasoned health communicator and has served as a principal investigator on national funded grants from the National Institutes of Health, which have addressed strategies for the prevention of cancer and heart disease through increased fruit and vegetable consumption. She earned her PhD in health promotion and behavior from the University of Georgia's College of Public Health. Prior to joining Joining the faculty at the University of, of Louisville, she completed, completed sorry, fellowships with the Center of Disease Control and Prevention and the Oak Ridge Institute for Science and Education as a postdoctoral fellow. 
Uh, Mary Ashlock is an assistant professor at the University of Louisville. She has a BS degree in education, MS in higher education, and a PhD in communication from the Florida State University. Her expertise is in the area of interpersonal communication, including leadership, organizational communication, public speaking, and gender. She has received numerous awards at the University of Louisville for pedagogy, mentoring, and instructional design. Um, thank you both so much for being here. Um, Dr. Della and Dr. Ashluck are going to be presenting using food challenges and video tech to promote fruit and veggie consumption with Gen Z. So without further ado, um, please take it away. Okay, well, thank you for the wonderful introduction. Um, I'm Lindsay Della, and um, we're going to, like uh, we were just introduced, uh, we're going to be talking to you today about using video technology and also um, something called Food Challenge to promote fruits and vegetable consumption with Generation Z. So these are our college students that we're working with today in our classes. if I get that to forward, there we go. Um, so our agenda for today, I'm gonna to talk through uh, just some of the competencies that uh, we will kind of be touching on throughout the uh, presentation. But then after that, I'll get into the need for nutrition education with our college age students, with our Gen Z young adults, some of the idiosyncrasies of communicating with this generation. And we'll talk about the theoretical foundation for the program that was designed to help increase their fruits and vegetable consumption, uh, the programmatic elements that were built on that theory, and then how we evaluated the program, what we found, and some of the lessons that we learned. And this is just a, a pilot program. So it was um, a small group of people and uh, happened over the course of just one semester at our university here. There's something to be learned, but more to, I think, be researched as we go along. Uh, just briefly, we are going to talk about how we identified the behavior change goals of the program, but also how we helped our students learn about setting their own personal goals. Um, and one of the things that uh, we noticed with our, our college students is they didn't really have a good skill set for that. Um, so we'll talk a little bit through how, how we helped with that process. Um, I'll also talk about the theoretical model that we use as the foundation or the framework for the intervention or the program. Um, and then some strategies for working with Generation Z. Uh, this is kind of our digital native generation. And they, um, you know, there are some things that you might suspect <laughs> could be challenging with that group, but uh, Dr. Eschlock will, will talk further about some of these activities that might work well with them. Um, and then we were also asked to kind of point out some essential practice competencies that um, maybe this presentation would help to uh, solidify for you. So I think definitely we're going to work through these communication methods and some of the skill sets you might need to work with a Generation Z audience and deliver information to them in a way that they can digest and really internalize. Um, also, we are going to talk a bit about um, just ways of maybe helping to take what you already know about things like goal setting and tweak it for this particular group of individuals. Um, and then we'll show you a bit about how technology was used with this class 
um, and how that seemed to have helped them with uh, learning skills and things that might be needed for healthy eating and healthy cooking. And I know we've already been introduced, so we just have our two screens here. I won't go over it in um, too much detail. So, Lindsay, there's our, my screen, and you can, we'll go ahead and forward to your screen as far as your information as well. So I think Lexi did a great job with that. And so we'll continue on. And we want to share with you that Carol O'Neill was the actual instructor in this class. And interestingly enough, during COVID, I was asked to mentor her. And I said, mentor Carol, she's been here forever. And she just really wanted to get more research out. And so she has a mutual friend of ours, Adam Coco, and Lindsay and I were asked to come in and help put everything together with her. So it was a really good team effort in getting this research article done. I'm going to go ahead and start since my area of expertise, if you will, is Gen Z. It's my passion. My kids are Gen Zers both of them. So, and, and especially Lindsay and I are around different generations, including Gen Z now. And we know there's a need for nutrition, no matter what age uh, young adults are. So let's go ahead and get started in this section. We begin with what all of you know, because you're the experts in this field as well in nutrition, that with our students, let's say our Gen Z generation, obesity in the US is, is continuing to be a significant risk factor. And you know, even to the point where now people say, oh, can I get that particular you know, medication, whatever, so it'll help with my obesity and so forth. So that's the first thing that are, that the Gen Z generation is dealing with. As far as the young adulthood, we know is such a critical time frame for healthy eating and you know, who are the role models for you and you know, who's helping guide you in those choices. In our case, the college students that we had in this study comprise a large portion of the young adult population in the United States. So we have we have thousands, hundreds of thousands of students who are now carrying on these habits into adulthood. We know their diets are high in fat. And especially today, the, we know the consumption of fast and convenience foods is there. And think about it. College students especially have so many, if you've been on a college campus lately, you can go to a Starbucks, you can go to a fast food stir fry, you can go to this, this, and this, it's all in front of you. It's so convenient that it's just, you know, grab and go, grab and go, grab and go. So that's what we're framing this with and keeping in mind uh, where we are with this class. So the barriers then to healthy eating among college students, given that last slide, is they have an a lack of nutrition and culinary knowledge, unless they've been fortunate to have a family, if a family member show them how to cook different nutritious meals. Many students have financial instability. So it's a matter of how many you know, dollars do I have and what can I get for that to fill me up? Then there's not, there's inadequate access to healthy food options. And then the time is a factor. Am I working two part-time jobs? How do I sleep? What do I do? I'm just gonna grab again, grab and go. Then this whole piece that we're fascinated and interested in is the low self-efficacy. You know, I don't know how to do any of this and the inadequate cooking skills put all together saying, there's no way I can do this. So we start out with traditional level nutrition classes. And, in, we, and the hope is that, that students increase their knowledge about healthy eating and really get them 
thinking about and using, we hope by the end of it, something that they would never have thought they could do. So we, we see that, you know, the knowledge and skills are prerequisites for a change, but we don't necessarily know what will, you know, what will occur. And we'll go through that in our presentation today with what we found with this particular group. And we have a good study sample size. Then the students need that, that again, that self-efficacy to be able to change their behavior too. And I think you'll be really interested in what we found with um, things that they said and, and so forth. What I'd like to do right now, because we're going to go into a brief communication section, I'm going to involve you. This is what I do with students. So while I can't see you, promise me that you'll post in the chat or we'll talk about it at the end. This is an exercise I do with any group that I'm presenting in front of because it helps me frame how we all communicate and where the pros and cons are in this case with Gen Z. All right, everybody ready? Raise your right arm and make a slight fist like this. All right. Put it on your chin and look, oh, you know, look at me. And this is your chin. So if you followed me and I said, raise your right arm, you know, you right and put it on your, put the fist on your chin. This is my cheek. And most people will follow me and put it on their cheek. And again, I say to people, this is your chin. But it's like, oh my God, I just did this with a chamber of commerce last week. And people, I think I had 65 people. And I think almost everybody did this, especially in person when you see it. So in looking at what just happened, we'll go to the next screen, Lindsay, is these, these numbers have been around forever. And usually you hear it in common common things on the radio. Oh, it's the Gallup poll, whatever. Well, this is what's happening. And there's some research to back it up. When I lifted my arm up and put my fist on my cheek instead of my chin, you are following my nonverbal. I said verbally, now nonverbal is a tone of voice. So my tone of voice here led you to believe that 33% that this is what I'm saying, go ahead and follow it. And then the nonverbal piece as well. So words are powerful yet we know that they are outweighed. So if Lindsay and I are presenting today and we would say, we're really excited to be here, blah, blah, blah. You would notice my nonverbal, you would, you would hear that tone of voice. And I bring this up with Gen Z students and any group because especially now we have, we have so many modes of communication. This is still the richest form of communication. Now we're doing a webinar, but face-to-face. -face. The, the level down is what we're doing now, a video. So you can at least see and hear, but we know there's other forms of communication and that's all part of this whole issue about um, students communicating in Gen Z in our case. All right, so we'll continue on Lindsay at this piece. So in these three columns, this is what I'd like you to think about. The first one on your left says Gen Z communicates through social and interactive media. Surprise, surprise, we know that. And what I say, and I just started mentioning to you are these bullet points on that far left side. The first thing I share with Gen Z students in their communication is that, and again, we're gonna get back to this by how do we pair it with food choices and, and get their attention. Because the first thing they communicate is through texting. That's the lowest. So we go from lowest to highest. Second is two-way. Okay, so I might email you. I'm, you know, maybe I'll pick up. Actually, cell phone is a, is a little bit two-way. But that's not really necessarily used. We have interactive virtual meetings that what we're doing now and then face-to-face. -face. 
So we go to the second column, Gen Z communicates with more of an open mind, which is a positive in this case, regarding inclusivity, equality, intercultural awareness of others. So that could bring in, and it does bring in interest in foods from all different groups in our case with our group today. So just so you have a sense of Gen Z, they're the most racially and ethnically diverse generation. So no surprise that they're more open-minded. And 52% of Gen Z are non-Hispanic whites. And G G Gen Z values neurodiversity and recognizes that different individuals learn in different ways. So it's just amazing to me. That's a positive when we look at other generations. And another key point, the third one here, is that Gen Z needs more critical thinking versus quick bites of information. Now, we know, and we're going to be showing you some quick bites of information because we want to figure out how do we then communicate with Gen Z, especially through food things. You're going to see that in a bit here. But we want to make sure that they that for other pieces that they're solving and considering, they need to think through decision making and problem solving takes a little bit more time versus quick, 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 quick. This is you know, this quick generation. So that's to hopefully provide you with the framework of how they're communicating in these ways. And then how are we going to meet them and help them in their food choices? All right, Lindsay, go ahead. Okay. Um, so let me talk a little bit about the program and in particular, the theoretical foundation for the program. Um, and if you're familiar with like healthy behavior change theories, you know that there are several out there that we have to sort of choose from. Um, I think a while back, the um, trans theoretical model was like really popular. I remember learning about the health belief model and the theory plan behavior. And um, we also have some social ecological models that we can pull in. Um, but what we found when we kind of looked in the literature was that for uh, a college young adult, college-aged young adult, the social cognitive theory was a really powerful theory to use as the framework for behavior change. In particular, um, if we're going to be creating a program that might be tangential or fit into a classroom kind of structure. There had been some other research that had been done using social cognitive theory where um, things were looked at that kind of are really important in social cognitive theory, like observational learning. Um, so you have a classroom setting, you can demonstrate skill sets, and students can learn how to uh, maybe season something using olive oil instead of uh, you know, high fat butter or something like that. So being able to just um, demonstrate the skill was kind of an important element that social cognitive theory brings to the table. Um, and then other things that get into the mix here are additional environmental factors, additional cognitive factors, all of which really work well in this more college age classroom environment. Um, so we decided to go ahead and build upon the existing literature in social cognitive theory. And you can see that, you know, basically we've got these three main elements or three main factors that really are um, sort of hypothesized to drive human behavior in the social cognitive theory. So we've got some things that people know in their minds, their cognitive factors, their knowledge level about health and nutrition and diet. Um, what they think uh, will happen if they choose a healthier behavior. 
So in, in particular, when talking about nutrition, we're talking about like, how's this going to taste? <laughs> Am I going to like it? Did I just waste all this time and effort and money buying this food? And I, I don't even really like these ingredients. Um, so what's the likelihood of me enjoying it and the value, if, you know, for uh, that kind of um, outcome? Um, and then also attitudes about healthy eating, whether this is a, you know, a good thing to do or not. Um, then we do have the idea of how we can get to better behavior. So skill sets that we can watch and observe people performing, as well as practice on our own that will help us develop more confidence in our own skills for, um, you know, specific skills that are needed for cooking and preparing food. So knife skills, understanding how to use spices and herbs to make things taste better. Um, so we need to practice those in order to feel more confident in being able to actually perform them on a more regular basis. And then there are those environmental factors like what do our friends think or what do our roommates think about all this cooking? Um, and, you know, can I influence them to want to get excited about, you know, what I'm doing and, and try some of my newly cooked foods at home, uh, and also access. So, uh, one of the things in one of the requirements for the class was that students did need to live in an environment where they had access to a kitchen and a stove. Um, they didn't do any cooking in the classroom, uh, but they needed to have, uh, they had to take a picture and show that they had a stove that was available. It didn't have to be one that only they used. It could have been in a common area, but they needed to have access to a place where they could cook things and it wasn't just a microwave. Okay, so um, in terms of the program itself, um, you know, it, like I said, we were working with students here at the University of Louisville. This was a convenient sample. So these were students who had decided to enroll in an introductory human nutrition course. A lot of health-based um, majors, just, you know, they were interested in nutrition. Uh, we had those kinds of majors enrolling in the course. Um, we also had some nursing students and some health and sports sciences students. Um, so this was definitely kind of like a, a convenience sample for our pilot study. Um, some students were enrolled online and other students were enrolled in person. So they had the more traditional come to class Monday, Wednesday, Friday, hear the lecture, um, and then, you know, go home and kind of do the homework. Whereas the online students, they learned in a more asynchronous format. So I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with um, university systems, but most of us have access to a learning management system. Here at the University of Louisville, we use Blackboard. And Blackboard is kind of like a website for each class that we teach. So um, the instructor though can tailor it to kind of look and be organized in whatever way works for their class. Um, so you might create a link that says homework assignments, and then if the student clicks that link, it'll take them to a web page where they can find all of your homework assignments. Um, so this class had a designated Blackboard page for both the online and the in-person students. Um, and what happened in the online class where it was asynchronous is that we also have access to an, uh, screen capture video technology. So um, Dr. O'Neill would record herself 
giving the lecture and then posted up on that Blackboard learning management system for the online students to access at any point during the week uh, uh, for that particular unit. Um, so it was an asynchronous kind of thing. Students could do it whenever they had time to do it. And we do have a lot of students who take online courses here because we have a lot of working students. Um, we'll have students who work in partnership with um, local industry, and sometimes they're working overnight shifts. So they like to take online classes where they can do the work you know, when it's kind of convenient and they're well-rested for them. Um, but across the two types of modalities, the classes were similar in structure. They had the same topics every week. The same lecture was delivered. Um, the main difference was one was recorded and posted online and one what happened in the classroom. Um, and there, we did kind of test to see whether there would be any differences between what kinds of students enrolled online versus the kinds of students who were coming to the class-based uh, modality, as well as whether we saw any differences in the outcomes of the program uh, by modality, and that did not happen. So these were very similar groups of people, and they experienced the intervention in a similar manner. Um, we have a, a little bit of demographic information here. For the most part, uh, the average age of our students was about 20 years old. And some of them had food service experience, just a little bit over half. Uh, we thought that might make a difference. So we did uh, look to see whether there were any differences um, if we included food service experience in the analysis. But again, um, it didn't really seem to influence how people experienced the intervention overall. We're also a fairly diverse university. So, um, you know, it is higher education, but 75% of uh, the, the people who enrolled in the class, the students who enrolled in the class were white, but 25% were of different racial and ethnic diversities. Um, and so that's very reflective of the university as a whole. So although we had certain majors who tended to sign up for the class, uh, the racial and ethnic diversity actually really mirrors what happens here. Uh, across the board at the University of Louisville. And then this was an introductory course. So we had a lot of sophomores, a couple of freshmen, a few juniors, and maybe like one or two seniors enrolled, but mostly sophomores were enrolled in this class. So um, I'm gonna talk a bit about kind of like the visual of how the uh, theory can be applied to um, putting together the activities for the intervention. And um, this is our visual logic model for how the intervention should work. If you're not super familiar with logic models, um, the way they're usually put together is that you start on the right-hand side and you look at like, well, what outcomes do we really want uh, to accomplish with our intervention? Um, and Dr. O'Neill had worked with the introductory class for a long time, and she decided that she really wanted students to um, better understand how to increase fruit and vegetable consumption. There are so many great health benefits to eating more fruits and vegetables. And of course, if you're eating more fruits and vegetables, then you start to uh, eat less of other things that aren't quite so good for you sometimes. Um, so she was really focused on increasing fruits and vegetables consumption with her students. Uh, but then using social cognitive theory, there are also some sort of 
intermediate outcomes that she was looking at, and she wanted to try to influence throughout the course of the program. And those were people's outcome expectations, their cooking attitudes, and then also different types of self-efficacy. So you'll see we measured all of those things. But if you back up towards the left-hand side, you get to kind of see how we thought the activities for the program would be influencing those outcomes uh, over the course of the program. So there are four main activities that went into the program design. Um, of course, one was the class lecture and we had the online delivery or in-person delivery where people um, you know, would watch the lectures and there's some nutrition information that was imparted that way. Um, there are cooking challenges and uh, Dr. Ashlack will talk a little bit more about the cooking challenges. Uh, there are also cooking videos that were shared as well as supplemental resources that were available for review on that learning management system. And the thing to know, I think, about the videos and the resources is that they, once they were shared, they were there and persistent throughout the, the course of the uh, semester. So students could always come back and look at them again. And I'll chime in at this point. We have laid out for you the nine instructional units that were included with this class. And so that's on the right-hand side. So I'll start though on the left-hand side, the lectures provided in addition to what Dr. Dell is saying, some information of course, to expand their knowledge and nutrition because some of them are coming in at all very different levels. And then the information about the behavior health links. So, and we're gonna again, um, show you some things here in a moment. The skill demonstration, which is so important, especially for that self-efficacy, you know, how do I do it? So the instructor would go ahead and, you know, in person or video show somebody and anything hands-on is very powerful in that case. And then to see other people, and this is where it's appealing to Gen Z, and I mentioned this earlier, the Gen Z wants to have something quick to the point and, and fun, nothing boring that's going to put them to sleep. And so we have, we have, we have many listed in the article, but we have a few that Dr. Dill is going to show you in a moment. And so before we do that, if you look again back on the right-hand side with the nine instructional units, we're looking at mindfulness, making sure that students are observing their hunger and when they're full. Oftentimes that's not the case. Just give it to me and let me keep eating until... I'm, I think I'm full. Then the control portion side of it as well. Then the menu planning. How many students have actually even planned a menu and knew what would go into it with increasing many of them with their goals, fruits and veggies. Then also looking more in depth, this is going, this is building up towards the end of the class, going into carbohydrates, going with the whole grains and, you know, decreasing that sugar, then the lipids, the healthy fats, the energy balance and the mindful snacking that's so important while they're all on the run. And it's, then you can see too, the minerals decreasing salt, increasing that calcium. And of course, a, my favorite always, and Dr. Della mentioned cooking with herbs, that self-efficacy, which we love the comments, <laughs> some of them with, with there's, oh my God, it was a whole new world with the herbs, uh, those kind of herbs and spice herbs. And, you know, celebrating with me, a family and friends being able to cook. So some of them would talk about how they actually did cook for their family and friends. So I'll turn it over to you, Dr. Della, with the Different. Yeah, so I'm going to uh, share a different screen here for a second, and I'm going to just show, I'm not going to show the whole videos because they're each 
They were short. They're about three to seven minutes long, but um, just for the sake of time, I wanted to show you a couple different ones. So I'll show you some short clips from each of them. Um, and let me just see if I get them pulled up here. So the first one I'm gonna show is um, one about how to stir fry. And and if you would, if for some reason you cannot hear the, vi the video, let me know um, and I'll see what's going on. But I, I tested it earlier, so I think it should work. <laughs> Why order out when you can stay in and stir fry? Make quick, nutritious meals all in just one pan for a fraction of the cost of takeout. With a lot of heat and a little oil, stir fried meats and seafood come out tender and juicy, while vegetables stay crisp, flavorful, and healthy. A wok or skillet with a large cooking area and high sides both work great for stir fry. A wooden or bamboo spatula is the perfect tool for stirring and tossing the ingredients. Here are five steps to mastering stir fry. Step one, prep your ingredients. Prepping all the ingredients first is the key to successful stir fry. Chopping and cutting is the bulk of the work, but cooking takes just minutes. Here's what you'll need to serve four helpings of basic chicken and vegetable stir fry. Measure out two tablespoons of cooking oil, such as peanut or canola oil, which can take high heat without smoking. Measure one half cup of chicken broth and set aside. Mince six cloves of garlic. Use a grater for one teaspoon fresh ginger and thinly slice one bunch of green onion. Okay, and so then this video goes on and shares kind of how to cook. Um, you got some details about how long to keep your chicken in there and how long to keep your um, vegetables in there so that they all cook well, but they don't get too soggy. Um, so you can kind of get a, just, a, uh, I think, a idea of how the, the quickness of stir fry really would appeal to uh, a Gen Zer, and you don't need a whole lot of it, like um, tools or instruments to cook this particular meal. You need a bamboo uh, spatula and a particular type of pan and probably a knife. Um, let me move on to the second one. So the second video here is about how to cut an avocado. Well, I'm Chef Tina Joe, and on today's tips and tricks, I'm going to show you how to cut an avocado. Now, this is really a simple technique, and I promise you, once you master it, you will never, ever, ever cut an avocado the same old way. Um, I, once upon a time, used to hack away at the seed in frustration trying to get at the meat of the avocado. So when I learned this technique, I was in heaven. So what you want to do, first of all, is get a knife that you're comfortable with, one that fits inside your hand know nicely take your avocado and you want to make a vertical cut down and through the avocado 
Now, hang on to it. You're going to spin it around and do the same thing going down the opposite side. Hang on to all the pieces. What you're doing is cutting four pieces. Put your knives down, people, because you will no longer need them with this technique. It is amazing. Knives down. You simply twist. Look at this. And you've got four absolutely beautiful pieces. The seed comes out easily. And it's so very simple to peel. You just grab it with your thumb and forefingers and pull back. Okay, so again, this one's less than two minutes long. Um, it's a really simple sort of tutorial on how to open up an avocado, how to get it ready to be eaten. Um, and it fits with what Gen Z would be, you know, willing to sit through and listen to. Um, and I think the other thing to kind of point out uh, across many of the videos that were chosen for this particular program is that uh, the people who are presenting, they seem happy and excited and, and very upbeat about what it is they're sharing with you. Um, so that's the kind of the nonverbal piece that Dr. Ashlock was mentioning that was really important for Gen Z. And here's the last one. This is a little bit more specific to how to make something um, overall, as opposed to kind of a general sort of meal planning or uh, skill set. Um, so this is more of a recipe option. And she did kind of get into more recipes uh, as the course went on. And she was focused a little bit more specifically on certain minerals or, um, you know, increasing whole grains, decreasing fats and things like that. Hey guys, it's Danny, and today I am making some clean and delicious overnight oats. I'll be sharing four in incredible flavors. My decadent double chocolate banana, light and bright blueberry lemon, a tropical mango, pineapple, and coconut, and my personal favorite, peanut butter apple pie. Now, the beauty of these recipes is that they all use the same exact so you could use the flavor combos that I'm suggesting, or you could use some flavor combos of your own, but you will see once you have the blueprint, you will become your very own overnight oatmeal making expert. And if you are looking for more inspiration, just like this, make sure to take a moment and subscribe. Now. Okay, so hopefully we get the, the picture of um, the types of videos that work well for this particular group, um, the way in which, you know, the instructor was able to kind of tap into finding some short little exciting uh, skill-based videos that would help to augment the main points of her lesson that week or for the curriculum for the, for the class. So I'll go ahead and continue. This is a great lead in, of course, to this next piece with their food challenges. So they had weekly food challenges from the instructor, from Carol. And what she did was she had this guided goal setting. And to, to Dr. Dell and I was fascinating because when we looked at all the data and, and with the students' feedback, they provide there were 10 to 15 goals that were provided to them, and they had to choose two every week. And then they had to have 
two goals that were SMART, as we know, the acronym is Specific, Measurable, Attainable, Realistic, and Timely Goals, something that they would actually do. And then they would cook meals at home following these small instructional steps. They'd have to take photos. And um, Dr. Dell mentioned that they'd take photos of the kitchen, they'd take photos of everything that they cooked, and then they're sharing it within their discussion boards with one another. The reflections to us were powerful. The students had, they called them weekly papers, and they, they were, but they were condensed so that each student could see what they actually experienced in their cooking endeavors. And so they said, you know, they reflected on their success challenges, and they would say, oh, this, I didn't really like this, blah, blah, blah. Or then all of a sudden, I can't believe I like this one herb. I never heard of it before. Then they had to keep a record of their eating and cooking behavior. And it just kept building up throughout the semester, especially with their attitudes and behaviors of what they were starting to implement and do. Then the final course reflection paper challenged them to look back at everything, at the their assumptions of what they thought at the beginning of the course, the barriers, and then the changes and what they're gonna do going ahead. And so you can look, and we, the, the resources, uh, Dr. Dellen, I thought were just so key for this is that everything was provided to them. They had an online materials library for all the support going forward. They had, as you saw, just a small portion of the videos that were all there posted. And again, they're listed in the article that we have, our research article, the online demonstration videos, the links to all kinds of nutrition resources, shopping tips, cooking, food science uh, concepts, and then the herbs and spices. And of course, these were matched with what they were doing weekly in what they were assigned to do cooking wise. Yeah, so basically all of those parts and pieces led to lots of viewed lectures, um, increases in nutrition knowledge. So they did have some more traditional you know, uh, tests of their knowledge. Um, but they also were each week creating their own tailored SMART goals. And one of the things that um, I think is really unique to this program is the, the set of like 10 to 15 goals that they were provided. This is sort of the guided goal setting approach. Uh, they selected two from there and then they personalized them to you know, kind of fit their own specific situation. So when they personalize them, that's when they started adding on kind of the, the smart elements. So it might've been, um, you know, I'm gonna wait 10 minutes until I, you know, have a second portion of something, see if I feel full. Um, so they might've tailored that to themselves to say, well, I'm gonna try to do that, um, you know, five out of the seven days this week. Uh, so what they thought they could accomplish. Uh, and this is really important for Gen Z because what uh, Dr. Eschlock talked about earlier on in the presentation is that uh, the critical thinking skills are not always uh, as up to snuff as we might want them to be. And so just saying, go out and set your own goals was a challenge. And over time, uh, Dr. O'Neill had realized that they really needed help with this process. So the guided goal setting worked really well with Gen Z and the reflection papers helped her to see that that was working well. Uh, also what she would do is when 
and students had to post those reflection papers up to the discussion board where other students in the class could reply to them, could read them. Um, oftentimes they would say, oh, you didn't meet your goal, but you know, like you can do it next week. And um, Dr. O'Neill would help them rework the goal so that it was more attainable, so that they didn't get discouraged and they could incrementally accomplish things throughout the semester. Um, and of course, they were cooking the meals, they were getting that practice, and they were able to watch the little, the little videos that we were showing you, and they had access to that supplemental material. So all of that transitions into um, the evaluation for the, the overall intervention. And so just as an overview, we know that this was a 15 week long course, which is a traditional semester uh, of class, of the, any certain class. And we had both the quantitative evaluation, a pre and post test design, and we just had one group, no control group. Um, so it's quasi experimental, but just hey, we had at least a large set of students, a good number for the quantitative. And then the qualitative evaluation, the thematic uh, analysis of all those reflection papers. Again, I mentioned earlier, it was so powerful to read what they were saying and, and with their experiences. And then to what Dr. Della mentioned with how they, we were so surprised at how well they would encourage one another to say certain things more specifically to one another. Yeah, so um, we measured most everything quantitatively, but those um, outcome expectations were things that we were looking at through the reflection papers. So we had quantitative measures for all of our other outcomes, self-efficacy based outcomes, actual consumption based outcomes and attitudes. Um, the consumption based outcome measures were single item self-report. Uh, so again, you know, this is a pilot study and we can poke holes at our single item self-report measures, um, but we, you know, we wanted it to be short enough that the students would actually complete the survey and they did take it sort of at the beginning of the semester and then again at the end of the semester. Um, I tried to give you some just sample questions for the cooking attitudes and the, the three different types of self-efficacy that we measured. All of these were measured on a one to five scale. So the, you know, the anchors were sometimes strongly disagree or strongly agree. Uh, if we're talking about attitude questions, um, if we're talking about self-efficacy statements, the anchors were things like not at all confident all the way up to extremely confident. And if you wanted more information about the measures, there's more in the article and um, that McCullen and Ike's is the, um, the citation for where those measures came from. So when we evaluated how, uh, how much or how little <laughs> change over time we had in this particular group, we did see significant increases from the beginning of the uh, 15 weeks till the end of the 15 weeks, particularly around all these different kinds of self-efficacy measures that we had uh, asked them about, uh, produce consumption, cooking, and using fruits and vegetables and seasonings. Um, so you can kind of see that the, the pre-test scores were lower than the post-test scores, and all of those were statistically significant changes. Not real big changes, so the effect like the overall effect of the intervention was kind of uh, small on the small side, but again, it wasn't a huge group of people, um, you know, just, uh, just those two sections of the class there. So um, 
We also did see increases in produce consumption and fruit consumption from the beginning of the intervention until the end of the intervention. Uh, in particular, the produce consumption uh, change over time was really approaching like a medium effect size. So the fact that we're getting a medium effect size out of this pilot study, I think that is really powerful um, that they must have really learned, you know, how to prepare vegetables, how to use them in their cooking and that they liked them prepared a particular way and they weren't shying away from using vegetables in their cooking. Um, the one thing that didn't change over time were our attitudes, and we think that's because of the kinds of people who enrolled in the course to begin with. Remember, these were um, health majors or nursing majors or um, like sports science majors who might have already had a positive attitude towards eating healthy. Um, they wanted to be there, and so you know we didn't see a whole lot of increase, but they started out with good positive attitudes to begin with. And again, in their written reflection papers from a qualitative standpoint, we saw that same trend is noted in the quantitative data Dr. Della mentioned, where the students said they reported they are, they're engaging now in more healthful behavior, eating behaviors in their discussion boards and in their papers, of course, here. The frequent comments included specifically a, men a mention of the meal planning before shopping. Remember I said we didn't... We, I, there wasn't much planning going on in the beginning, preparing meals on weekends, taking one's own lunch. That's a huge thing to campus. And then again, a big one for their comments of trying those and using now the herbs and spices in their cooking. Okay, so what we think is really important to kind of take away from this pilot intervention is that when working with Gen Z, um, we can't assume that they know how to set their own goals. <laughs> and the idea of sort of using that guided goal setting where students get a pre-written list of goals that they're able to select from really helped them to focus in on something that they thought they could accomplish, that they would be successful against, and that you know, over time, they could learn to work into sort of smart format for their own situations. Um, so that guided goal setting piece was really important for this group. We also heard from Dr. Ashlock, and we kind of know from our own experiences teaching at the university level, um, that we do have a lot of different neurodiversities within Gen Z. And so providing um, visual options for learning and that persistent library of recorded skill-based videos allowed students to listen uh, to the videos multiple times um, or watch what was going on uh, multiple times so that they could then feel more confident that they would be able to uh, you know, enact the skill that was being demonstrated and it helped boost their self-efficacy over time. Um, the challenges, those food challenges, those cooking challenges, those were really engaging. This is a group that participates a lot on social media and, um, you know, coming to class and sitting in a lecture is pretty boring. Even just watching somebody do something is kind of boring. So the fact that they had to at home practice in their own kitchens um, really helped to engage the student. And we saw that in our reflection papers that students were getting more excited about what they were doing over the course of the semester. Um, and finally, uh, reflection on your own successes and your own failures, of course, helps to aid in learning. We know this to be the case, but um, 
We also used reflection papers to kind of hold the students accountable for their at-home practice. And they had to post them to the discussion board. So other students saw, you know, they, you know, what they had created. And there was kind of like this um, social expectation that you're going to be posting your, your picture and people wanted to see what you had made at home. Um, so it allowed for self-discovery and like a, a fun manner um, and also provided an element of social support electronically in the online discussion board through our learning management systems where Gen Z kind of feels comfortable sending messages back and forth to each other. Um, and one of the other things they did note about the reflections is they kind of liked um, commenting on uh, others' success, like what other people had said about their own successes and failures. They weren't necessarily having to judge whether somebody made good progress against a, you know, some sort of tracker or something, but they got to encourage others um, after they read that person's self-reflection. All right, we have additional considerations for you. So we've highlighted them here. Um, this was based, this intervention was based obviously in a class. So students were, re were required to attend for, for 15 weeks. And we found in other research college students, of course they prefer a six to eight week intervention. And there are classes that are that long. So that works just as well. The second piece or consideration is a private persist, persistent online space. It helped for this as we had talked, we had explained with our Blackboard. Um, if not part of a course, you could have a protective, a protected web page, wiki, and all kinds of interactive pieces. And that's just the case is that you have some way that they can be sharing their information. And we, and we noted some things here. Some students are using um, not necessarily Facebook, um, for them, but certainly other apps. Um, WhatsApp is definitely still out there. And then students were able to provide support through reactions, as we've been telling you all along, that online intervention asked students to report their progress and tracking it, then looking at that second level support where it's important that they get feedback and not be judged. And so that was, you know, you can sense the hesitancy as you would in any class at the beginning, but then you really see the encouraged the encouragement in conversation instead of judging. Okay, then I don't, we don't have any um, actual or potential conflicts of interest to disclose, so we are open for questions. Thank you so much for that presentation. Um, that sounds like a really fun course. Um, please sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so um, I'll go ahead, uh, open it to questions. So um, if you have a question, please feel free to um, put it in the Q&A and then um, I'll read through them and um, ask our presenters um, those questions. So we have one already. Um, so were you able to measure vi which videos were actually accessed and if they were watched in full? Yeah, so um, Blackboard does allow you to um, collect statistics that way. I think we mentioned in the article, and we didn't say it here, um, that the videos were, we, we looked at kind of the average, but most of the time they were accessed once or twice a week. Um, and so we can kind of keep track of, well, did they click through that link? Now, once they're over there, um, you're correct. We we don't know if they watched the whole YouTube video or not, but they were short enough where it was likely they might have gotten through most of it. Great. Um, 
Any more questions um, from the audience? Um, if not, like I would love to know a little bit, um, thinking like big picture and thinking of all the elements that you had in the class, um, is there anything that you would want to add or like maybe take out of the curriculum or modify the curriculum in any way? I, I'm not sure. Um, I don't know, Mary, you can jump in on this. I, I think that um, one of the things we would probably like to do in the future is make sure that the videos we're using as kind of the additional demonstration videos feature more diverse individuals. And that's a little bit more difficult, I think, sometimes to do. Um, there tend to be a lot of white women who are really excited about eating really healthy. Uh, <laughs> so we need to we need to go in and search, I think, for um, videos that look like the distribution of our student population here. Um, and you know that I think that's one tweak that we'll try to make into the future. Have you ever considered producing your own? videos for the class? Well, and so there were videos that were produced, um, but we could potentially use students to do that. So um, to create the like short little fun ones, uh, I think we would have to, you know, really be active in uh, getting students to understand how to be in front of a camera and how to demonstrate cooking. Uh, those YouTube videos, you know, they take a little longer to produce than you actually yeah, yeah. <laughs> And the key thing is too, having students from one particular class who've done it already and to come back. It's sort of a mentorship piece. Yeah, I can appreciate the work that goes into it, but it, it sounds like it would be a, a fun student project as well if they have the time and energy for that. Um, another question that we got, uh, first, they say excellent presentation and what connections to social media platforms served as an asset or hindrance to your Gen Z intervention and research? Um, so I don't think she used a lot of social media in this particular uh, intervention. The opportunity for social media use could be there. I think one thing that we have found, I've done some other interventions that have not been class-based. Because we have the learning management system, it's easy to use that. And it functions a lot in the same ways that social media could function for the course. So um, we can set up a back and forth discussion board where students can you know, make posts, they can put videos, you can upload uh, pictures. And people can respond back and forth to those things. Um, and it's all within the course structure. So we're not necessarily getting people from outside commenting on things that way. Um, but I think I mentioned uh, at, at the end there, we when I've worked on other interventions that haven't been course-based, but have been with a college-aged population, we struggled with this because students told us they don't want it to be public, public, right? Like they don't want these random people to be commenting on, oh, meet your goals. Um, so we created a Facebook group for that particular intervention and um, some students used it, but some students told us, well, I wasn't gonna set up a Facebook account just to be <laughs> part of this. So it, it kind of like fell sort of lackluster, but we use Facebook because you're able to create a private group setting there. Um, and so finding another sort of social media way to 
interact with people who are part of the intervention um, to provide that kind of social support, but in like a protected space, I think is important for this generation. Um, and in particular, you know, the idea that they don't want other outside people who don't really know what they're up to, to be judging their progress and that kind of thing. So um, I think you have to be careful about how you pull in social media uh, for something that's nutrition and weight oriented and diet oriented. There's a lot of stigma around it. And I think that speaks a little bit um, to our next question of have you considered trying such a study with people who are not yet necessarily on board with healthful eating? That's the next step, right? So right, we had all those high attitude scores. We're like, oh, these people really wanted to be healthy eaters. They just needed to know how. Um, but that, because this is just a pilot, we would like to expand it and, and do it again, um, with other students who are not necessarily, you know, health majors or nursing majors are really excited about health and fitness. Um, so if we could go over to the school of engineering or the school of business and see what those students, uh, how they interact with the intervention, that's the next step. Great. Well, um, yeah, we're almost at the top of the hour. So once again, I want to thank you both so much for the really exciting and um, engaging presentation. And um, yeah, so Rachel, um, can you please close this out? Yeah, I was going to say, there's one last question just squeezed in. Oh, Do you feel there's an ideal class size for this type of intervention? You know, um, We've had some, and Mary, you can talk to this yeah. because um, you teach very large classes. I teach all sizes. I mean, it, ideally, off the top of my head, I would say no more than 35 to 40 per class. Would it be great to have? Online's fine. Face-to-face -face would be even better, I think, just because it's the highest form of communication. So nothing more than, I'd say, 35 to, I mean, ideally, it'd be great to have 25. In these introductory classes, we do get yeah. more. So I think that's why our numbers were a bit higher. And um, she also taught multiple sections uh, that's like that semester. So um, I don't know if her cap class was capped. Sometimes we have caps on our courses, right. depending mm -hmm. on the, the nature of them. Right. Well, excellent. Thank you very much for presenting today. Uh, just a reminder, when I close out the webinar, there's a short survey and we appreciate your feedback. Um, watch for an email follow up with your CEU certificate, the recording and the handout. And like I said, final journal club of the spring semester, but we are planning to bring journal club back in the fall. Uh, we're going to do a best of JNEB again, uh, but those uh, best papers uh, have not been announced yet. So stay tuned uh, for what the content was going to be. Um, we do have another webinar later this month, and we have a webinar that's pending approval. So keep your eye on the SNEB calendar uh, for more upcoming webinars. And then final reminder, um, I think this time last week, I was telling you that uh, the early conference registration was ending, and we had 425 people registered for the July conference um, before the early deadline ended. So the next early deadline is June 19th, uh, so um, that's the next chance to save um, before the on-site conference registration. So look forward to um, seeing some of you in Washington, D.C. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you.